Let's remain standing for the reading of God's holy word. Today's text comes from Psalm chapter 1. And the word of the Lord says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Today, we're going to begin a little series that we're doing this summer on the Psalms, the summer Psalms. Uh, We're taking a short break from our exposition of the book of Romans, and we'll resume that probably in late August or early September. But we're going to spend some time in the Psalms. Uh, All Scripture, whether it's in the Old or the New Testament, according to 2 Timothy 3.16, is breathed out by God. It may have been written by human hands, but it's completely composed by the Holy Spirit. So no matter what story you read inside of the Bible, there's a correlation to Jesus within it. And as we read the Bible, we should be constantly searching for Him, no matter what book, chapter, or verse we're in. Theologians call this practice reading through the lens of Christ, looking for evidence of Jesus on every line, on every page. St. Basil the Great wrote that all of Scripture is like a general hospital for souls where people may choose the right medicine for their own diseases. The prophets in the Old Testament teach us wisdom, give us hope for times to come. The historical books give us perspective and help us to learn from the successes and failures of the past. The Proverbs give us wise counsel and advice like a father speaking to his children. And the Gospels and the Epistles tie the story all together. So the Bible is made up of hundreds of stories, all of which combine together to make up the greatest story of all, the story of how God loves and rescues his people. So in the middle of all of this is the book of Psalms. And it holds a little bit of everything we've talked about. It talks about history It talks about guidelines for living. It gives advice about what to do when we face tough choices in life. It gives healing to old wounds, and it binds up new ones. It encourages us to escape the noise and the confusion and the strife that dominates us sometimes. And it encourages us to focus less on these troubles in life and more on the peace and joy that comes from knowing God. The Psalms recognize the deepest depths of human failure. And they celebrate the grace of God that rescues us from our bad choices and rescues us from our worst mistakes. The Psalms are songs. They reflect what's in our hearts and they're packed with raw human experience. So the name of this series is The Head and the Heart because the Psalms hit us in both places. Uh, The Psalms are instructive about God and man and life, the head. 
They were written in such a way that we could read them and learn things about God and about human nature and about how to deal with the twists and the turns in life. The Psalms are more than just poetry. They instruct the mind. They're intended to impact the way we live by exposing us to the idea that God is good. Even when things seem bad, God is good. Even when we aren't good, God is good. The Psalms instruct us, they impact us in the head. And the the Psalms are songs, so they impact us in the heart. Music is a formative thing. It makes us who we are, and it brings us back to a place in life. We have songs to identify with the most significant moments in our lives. I've read recently that if good theology uh, isn't taught in churches, and it doesn't match the theology that is sung in churches, people will follow the theology and the music every single time. And I believe this is true. Music makes an indelible mark on us. And if you think about the most significant moments of your life, I can almost guarantee you that there's a song you can relate to them. Who can remember the song they played at your wedding? Somebody tell me, what did they play at your wedding, Tim? The Rose. The Rose. Bette Midler, The Rose at Tim's wedding. The wedding song. Okay. Anybody else? What was the song? Casey? More Than You'll Ever Know by Travis Tritt and T-R-O-U-B-L-E at the reception. Uh, so there you go. Uh, anybody else got a good one from your wedding? Or a song maybe you used to listen to when you were dating your spouse. Can you remember a particular song you used to listen to? Neil is smiling. He is smiling. There's so many. Uh, so we all have those songs. Casey got the song wrong. That was their first dance. He doesn't know what song they did. So there you go. He's in trouble now. So there'll be a song that reminds you of today because this is going to be a traumatic day for you. So all, uh, almost everybody has a song that we say every once in a while, I want that song sung at my funeral. And I have heard all kinds of songs sung at funerals. I've heard Amazing Grace. I've heard I'll Fly Away. I heard Freebird. At one funeral, I heard the song I Like My Truck. You remember that one from back in the 90s? I Like My Truck. It's right outside. I ain't got much luck, but I sure got a ride. Uh, so... Sang it at a guy's song. I want uh, uh, Blue Sky by the Allman Brothers played at my funeral. And I want it sung congregationally. So if you don't know that song, go home and learn it. It's, uh, there, it's a great song. It is. Uh, songs stir us up inside and they make us feel emotions in our hearts. Um, and whatever emotion you're experiencing, the Psalms cover that emotion, loneliness, love, joy, sorrow, regret, shame, delight, fear, courage, anger, peace, brokenheartedness, hope. Whatever emotion you're going through, the Psalms talk about it. It's explicitly discussed in the Psalms. So, what is Psalm 1 talking about? Psalm 1 is about, it begins by talking about the progression of sin. 
It says this. It starts this way. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So sin progresses according to the posture of your heart. Either it's walking, standing, or sitting. I've heard this particular psalm preached as a command to read your Bible more so that you won't sin as much, and so God will bless you. A behavior modification plan to get you in good with God. But we can't read this psalm that simplistically. Simplistic, uh, that simply, how about that? But the writer is challenging us to think deeper than just saying, follow the rules. Intellectually, God is challenging us to look at a progression of how sin's, sin works. To think about our sin and our posture and our attitude toward our sin. Jason Luke is a law enforcement officer. And that means two things. One, he always has a firearm on him. And two, he loves donuts. <laughs> but if we're being realistic, Jason would love donuts even if he wasn't in law enforcement. So let's assume Jason loves donuts and he walks by the new Dunkin' Donuts next to Kroger uh, on his way to work every day. Uh, he doesn't have any money in his pocket because Casey doesn't trust him with cash. But he wants a donut really badly. So Jason begins to think it's not fair that everybody gets to eat a donut and I don't. And then one day he starts to think, I could just go in there and take a donut. And then he thinks about it over and over. And he's considering whether or not he should go inside and just steal one. And he might walk by and think about it a million times, walking in his sin. But then one day his posture and his attitude towards his sin progresses, and he thinks about it so much, his conscience starts to tell him, Jason, you're starving. And it's just a donut. Nobody will ever know. Just go in and take one. He's thought about this sin so much, it's getting normalized and justified in his mind. He's thinking, well, I'm hungry. And Casey don't give me any donuts at home. And he wants a donut. So one day, instead of walking by, he changes course and he walks inside the shop and he stands at the counter. So he's moved from walking in the counsel of the wicked to standing in the way of sinners. From just thinking about sin to putting himself in a position where it could actually happen. And on this particular morning, there's nobody in the store. It's just him. No cashier. Whoever's running the store that day is not at the counter. So he's by himself. And he stands there a minute and this thought pops in his head. I could just take one of these donuts. Nobody would ever know. And he's drooling, looking at all these chocolate frosted eclairs. And he thinks nobody, not the donut people, not Casey, not his mom, not even God, will ever know. So Jason, who has been walking in the counsel of the wicked, sits down at the counter. So he's progressed from walking in the counsel of the wicked to standing in the way of sinners to sitting down in the seat of scoffers. 
and he's thumbing his nose at what he knows is right and he chooses wrong and he begins to take and eat the donuts because nobody's there to catch him. He's thought about the possibility of sin. He's walked in it. He's made a conscious choice to put himself in a situation where he could sin. He stood in it. And now he's so comfortable with the idea of this sin that it's like settling into an old recliner that fits you just right. He sat in it. He made himself right at home. He didn't do it because he knew he had to. He didn't do it because he got influenced to do wrong. He didn't do it because he didn't know any better. He didn't do it because Casey neglects his desire for donuts. He didn't do it because his mom didn't raise him right. He did it because he wanted to do it. He could have chosen a different way to walk to work. He could have chosen to not go into the donut shop. And he could have walked out without stuffing his face. But he did it. So Psalm 1 is about the progression of sin. But it's also about the preventative medicine for sin. Psalm 1 verses 2 and 3 says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on that law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its seasons, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So Jason has been meditating on donuts and obsessed with donuts and thinking about donuts and all the donuts the world can offer him and all this temporary pleasure when he could have had a much deeper rooted, more permanent joy, a joy that's strong and a joy that's last, that lasts if he had been rooted in Christ. You think about driving down I-85 and you see all these billboards, literally thousands of them, buy this, shop here, fly Delta, eat at Hooters. I bet there's 50 Hooters signs between Commerce, Georgia and Atlanta, Georgia. Why do they do that? They do that so you'll be thinking about their product constantly. So you'll be meditating on what they have to offer. Advertisers use this strategy, and so does the devil. If you look at enough pornography, you'll want to look at it more and more. And eventually, you'll be dissatisfied with the intimacy you could enjoy with someone real because it's not like what you see on the computer. You wind up cheating on your spouse, fishing in somebody else's pond is what my granddad used to call it, or wallowing in some other hog slop. The devil loves it because the marriage was created by God and the devil wants to ruin marriages, so he encourages you to focus on what you might catch if you fish in a different pond. The devil does what advertisers do. He's keeping thoughts in front of your mind about what you don't have or what you could have, and he wants you to meditate on these things. Merriam-Webster's uses the phrase reflections designed to guide thoughts to define the word meditation. And the medical dictionary uses the term concentrated focus. So if I want to guide your thoughts to eat at my restaurant instead of eating at home, even though the food is good or even better at home, I'm going to do everything I can to get you to focus on what I have to offer in order to guide your thoughts 
towards me. But the fact is, I don't want you to enjoy your meal in my restaurant. I want you to swipe your credit cards. And the devil's the same way. He'll put something beautiful in front of you, but he does not want you to enjoy it. He wants to kill your soul with it. He wants to destroy your joy. But if you know Christ, you have hope beyond just the things you can see in front of your face. If you focus on what the world has to offer, you'll only find temporary delight in worldly things. But if your soul is fixed on Christ, on God and His Word, you'll find joy and delight there. There's the old story, the old rural proverb about two dogs fighting inside of you for ownership of your soul and one is good and one is evil and which dog will win and the answer to the question is the one you feed the most so the first two verses of this very first chapter is telling us the entire purpose of the book of psalms this book is intended to change our way of thinking, to help us focus on God and to find joy in God instead of what the devil has to offer. Romans chapter 12 verses 1 through 2 says, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, which is good and acceptable and perfect. The number one priority of Christians is to worship God, and the number one way to do this is to allow the Spirit to transform your mind, to change the way you think about life. And if you're rooted in Christ, then the fruit of your life will be good fruits. We get these deep roots that connect us to Christ by being connected to His Word, by having concentrated focus on the Word of God. So Psalm 1 shows us the progression of sin, and it gives us the prescription for preventative medicine to prevent sin. And also Psalm 1 is about the remedy for sin. Verses 5 and 6 say, Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I've got a question for our kids today. All you kids who come to CBC United, I want you to look at me. Who's a sinner? Who's a sinner? Somebody tell me. Everybody. Everybody. Everybody's a sinner. We're all sinners. And the Psalms talk a lot about sin. David wrote most of the Psalms, and he was really good at sinning. He makes it clear in Psalm 1 that only the righteous and not the sinners can survive God's judgment. The Psalms ask about righteousness several times. Psalm 14.3 says they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. Not even one. Psalm 130 verse 3. If you Lord should mark iniquities. 
Oh Lord, who could stand? And the answer is none. So according to the Psalms, we are all sinners. No one is righteous. But then the psalmist goes on in chapter 130, verse 4, and he says, But with God, there's forgiveness. In Psalm 32, 2, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. When David wrote, Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, he was again writing about the posture of the soul. But this time he's not talking about walking or standing or sitting in sin. He's, he's talking about being found guilty in our own personal state of depravity in the context of a courtroom setting. We move beyond whether or not you commit the sin into a state of judgment. And you know how on television or how in court you're watching a courtroom scene and at the end the judge has the defendant to stand to receive his verdict. But in this case, in this scenario in Psalm 1, you and I are before God and God is our judge. And when David says the wicked will not stand in judgment, what he means is we're so guilty, we're so powerless over our sin, we don't even have the fortitude to stand up and receive our own verdicts. So none of us are righteous in our own power. And God does mark iniquity and He does count sins. And the perfect holy God requires perfect holiness of His people. David says, nor will sinners stand in the congregation of the righteous. And what he means is, you cannot stand before a holy God unless you are cleansed completely from your sins and made holy yourself. Charles Spurgeon wrote, sinners cannot live in heaven. They would be out of their element. Sooner could a fish live upon a tree than a wicked man in paradise. So in order to be cleansed from our sins, we have to be able and willing to admit our poverty of spirit. A state of sinfulness so desperate, we can't even stand to receive our own verdict. This morning in Sunday school, we talked about Matthew 5, chapter 3, where Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what Jesus is saying is that happy, blessed, beautiful people are the people who can admit they're helpless. People who are not full of themselves. People who consider themselves unworthy of God's affection and His attention. William Barclay said it this way, Blessed are the poor in spirit means... Blessed is the man who has realized his own utter helplessness and who has put his whole trust in God. In Luke chapter 18, there's a parable that Jesus told about a Pharisee, a religious leader, a good church-going man. And also in this parable was a tax collector, a notorious sinner who swindled people and robbed and the Pharisee prays a prayer that is 
an incredible picture of self-esteem on steroids. In Luke chapter 11, it reads, The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went home justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I've always thought it was interesting that the phrasing in the New King, New King James Version of the Bible it says that the Pharisee prayed thus with himself. It doesn't mention once that he's praying to God. He's praying with himself. And essentially to himself. And he's giving himself a pep talk. In fact, in his prayer, he mentions God one time and mentions himself five times. Thank you, God, that I'm better than anyone else, that I'm superior, that I'm not like the sinners. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I have to the church. So the prayer of this Pharisee, he's praying a prayer to himself. It's his strategy to build himself up in his own eyes, to build up his own religious superiority, a religious excellence through a religious performance record. Jesus is making a point here. If you look back at the audience that Jesus is teaching this lesson to, going back to earlier in the book of the Luke, Jesus was teaching this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So Jesus is painting a portrait of the type of prayer that pleases God, the type of posture of the heart that God approves, this poverty of spirit, and the passage closes with this man, this sinner, who wasn't afraid to admit he was a sinner, went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee who was very religious and thought very highly of himself. For everyone who lifts himself up will be humbled and everyone who humbles themselves will be lifted up. The beginning of blessedness and approval from God is not the realization that we're righteous. But it's understanding that we are not righteous. That we're in the same boat as everybody else. The beginning of blessedness is not that we're strong and capable, but that we're frail and we're incapable Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, The first thing you must realize as you look at the mountain you must ascend is that you cannot do it. You are incapable in and of yourself. In other words, don't think that you have problems and you have to overcome them. 
you can't save yourself. Alcoholics Anonymous is a 12-step program, and step one is admitting that you're powerless over all of your problems. And you can't move on to any of the other steps until the posture of your heart allows you to admit you're powerless over what's killing you. Martin Luther, the author of the Protestant Reformation, and possibly one of the most well-known men of God in history, said on his deathbed, we are all beggars. And Brennan Manning echoed this when he wrote, we are all beggars at the door of God's mercy. And I know some of you might have come this morning and you wanted to hear an encouraging message that would make you feel better about yourself. And for you, I'll say this from Jack Miller, cheer up, you're worse off than you thought you were. But God's love for you is infinitely greater than you've ever imagined. Thinking you're good enough to get in good with God won't get you anywhere. Think about the tax collector. He stands far off from the altar. He won't even lift his eyes to heaven. And he recognizes his unworthiness before God. And he beats his chest to express that he has a broken heart. And he prays, God, have mercy on me. And the original Greek doesn't say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It says, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. I'm the worst. He's not even aware that the Pharisee is praying 10 feet away from him, saying, God, thank you so much that I'm not like him. Because he understands that the gap between the holiness and the beauty of God and the sinfulness and the ugliness of his own being is too wide for him to ever cross on his own. But here's the beauty in this. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's not an invitation to try harder. It's an invitation to rest. A declaration that the gospel has never been intended to be a self-help program or a behavior modification plan. It's an emphatic statement that God helps those who cannot help themselves and who know they can't help themselves. This psalm, along with all of the psalms, point us to Jesus. According to Isaiah 53, 5, He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. He was wounded for our lack of righteousness. He was crushed for our sinfulness. God is fully aware of all of our sins, all of our walking in sin, all of our standing in sin, all of our sitting in sin, but all of the punishment that we deserve for our sins, He laid it on Christ on the cross. God does require righteousness, but when we couldn't achieve righteousness on our own, He laid our sins on Jesus and imputed the righteousness of Jesus unto us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, God made Him, Jesus, 
to be sin who knew no sin so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. This is the good news of the gospel. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Christ, we don't have to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Our debt is paid in full. No matter how sorry or rotten or sinful we are, we're given the gift of righteousness in Jesus Christ so that one day we'll stand before God. We won't sit because we're so guilty, but we'll stand. And He'll see the holiness of His Son Jesus when He looks at us. And He'll say to us, Well done, good and faithful servants. I used to know a pastor that would always say, if you want to hear well done, then you better well do. If you want to hear well done, you better follow all the rules. You better get it right. Don't smoke, don't dip, don't drink, don't chew, and don't kiss the girls who do. He said it all the time. It was a good catchphrase. It's terrible theology. Some biblical theology. If you want to hear well done, then you need to quit trying to prove to God that you can well do and recognize that Jesus Christ on the cross well did. We don't need to prove ourselves better than the sinner next to us in church. The psalmist wrote, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does... He prospers. Scott Sauls wrote, All we have to do is declare spiritual bankruptcy and we'll become heirs to the king's fortune. We'll become heirs to eternal life. And be a tree planted by water with leaves that don't wither. I'm going to ask our musicians to come. So there's hope for sinners. No matter how many chocolate eclairs you've stolen, Jason, there's hope. No matter how many times we've bought what the world was selling us, there's hope. No matter how much you fed the restless evil inside yourself, there's hope. No matter how much pain and discouragement and loss and rejection you've endured, there's hope. And you can find it in the Word of God. Sally Lloyd-Jones wrote probably my favorite book of all time. And it's a book for children. The Jesus Storybook Bible. 
And she wrote in the introduction, Now some people think that the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. And the Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what He has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. And the Bible does have some heroes in it. But most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and they run away. And at times, they're downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the ones he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all of the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves His children and comes to rescue them. And it takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. The good news of the gospel is that no matter how much we've sinned, Jesus Christ took the punishment for our sins on the cross so that we can enjoy God forever so that we can have eternal pleasure better than anything any momentary temptation could ever offer. But the good news of the gospel is more than just an idea. The good news of the gospel is a person. The good news, the best news, is Jesus Christ. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my present, my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. 
For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is a fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The word of the Lord. You can be seated. During our kickoff last week for this series of Summer Psalms, we established that psalms are intended to be instructive and that psalms are songs. They're romantic and lyrical expressions of emotion. So psalms are intended to transform and shape how we think the head and how we feel the heart. Psalm 16 begins by saying that this song is a miktam. If you look in the uh, scripture journals we have in the back, it's, it's indicated in the ESV that this is a miktam of David. Uh, this is one of six times that a psalm is described this way. In Psalm 56, it's written during a time when the Philistines had attacked and captured David. In Psalm 57, which is also identified as a miktam, David was under attack from King Saul and on the run. In Psalm 58, again, David is under attack, and he writes this great imprecatory psalm, a psalm filled with curses. And then in Psalm 59, again, it's identified as a miktam, when Saul had sent paid assassins to David's house to watch and wait for an opportunity to kill him. And in Psalm 60, when David had been defeated in battle. And finally, here in Psalm 16, uh, we don't know the exact context of Psalm 16 like the other psalms that are identified as miktams, but there's a clear indication that David is in some kind of trouble. And it's noted in the first line where David indicates he's struggling, and he's striving with some kind of difficulty in life. He begins the psalm by writing, Preserve me, O God. All of the miktams deal with this wrestling with the difficulties of life versus having faith in God, even in the midst of our troubles. Miktam is a difficult word to translate, but the closest we can come to an accurate definition from the Hebrew is that it means an engraving or an inscription on a pillar. So a miktam is like a marker, a signpost, that reminds you of where you've been and the direction where you, where you should go from where you are. So psalms are written as miktams. To, uh, to, uh, they're intended to remind us of God's constant presence, even in difficult times, as well as His ability and His power and His desire to bring us through difficult times so that our faith will stand strong. So remember that in that in definition, a miktam is an, an inscription on a pillar. It's intended to be a signpost to remind us of God's goodness and His faithfulness and His power and His love, even through our most difficult storms of life. Uh, miktam refers to a recollection of a time when a dangerous or dark experience serves to highlight the brightness of the love of God. So we don't look at the traumas and tragedies of life 
It's just dark times, but it's demonstrations of God's faithfulness and His goodness and His love and His power. This power that rescues us and restores us. Miktams are memories of grace engraved on our hearts. Memories that will help us draw comfort and peace when we're faced with new challenges in life. So there's three distinct parts to Psalm 16. The first is a petition. David is asking for help. Then next, there's a series of declarations, verses 1 through 7. And then there's an affirmation of faith or a statement of confidence in God in verses 8 through 11. And today we're going to work our way through the first five verses of this particular uh, miktam. Part one is a petition. Psalm 1-1 says, Preserve me, O God. So David begins by writing, essentially, Help me, Jesus. Literally what he means here is, God, please don't let me die. So David needs help. And he's in some kind of trouble. And he doesn't go into a lot of detail about what kind of trouble it is. But instead, rather than dwelling on his problems, he moves immediately into a multi-layered declaration. And he answers this question, who is God for me? Even in the midst of my storms, who is God for me? So David asks for help in a state of desperation. And then he begins preaching to himself making a series of declarations, reminding himself of who God is. So, David's asking a question, who is God for me? And then he makes his first declaration to answer this question. He says in Psalm 16, 1, For in you I take refuge. And what he means by this is, God is my refuge. I wanted to ask you today, is there anyone here today who can truthfully say that they have absolutely, positively, no troubles, no worries, no anxiety about anything in life right now? If so, just raise your hand and let us know. And we'll check how much you put in the offering plate today. And because you've got to double it at least. I mean, if there's just no trouble in life at all, everything's going right. None of us have that kind of life. None of us do. Sometimes life seems like it's filled with one crisis after another. And it may not even be one crisis after another. It may be one temporary crisis one molehill that becomes a mountain in our minds. I have a terrible habit of doing this myself. Now, some days are great. You have plenty of money in the bank. That's usually the first of the month for us. By the third, that's usually not the case. The kids are behaving. Your wife lets you eat Mexican food and have a Chick-fil-A cookies and cream shake in the same day. And you're excited and you're happy and you're thanking God for all these blessings and this amazing life, right? But then there are days that are hard. When the day just starts and there's nothing that goes right. Your kids are fighting first thing in the morning. And you can't find matching socks. And you hope by the time you get to work, things will be calm and there'll be peace. But then you get there and your boss is in a terrible mood. And 
your helper calls in sick and you're on your own for the day. But then there's even worse days when you hear words like cancer or your name is in the paper for something you don't want your friends or the good church folks to see or someone calls you and they ask you if you're so-and-so's dad or so-and-so's husband or so-and-so's wife and you answer yes and their next words are, I hate to be the one to give you this news. Those days are hard. But I want you to understand there's never any promise in Scripture that says if you believe in Jesus, you won't have problems in life. In fact, in 1 Peter 4.13, Peter said that we should not be surprised that we experience fiery trials. And Jesus himself said in John 16.33, in this world we will have trouble. So Jesus doesn't promise any lack of problems in life. Instead, he guarantees that we're going to have problems. What he does promise, though, is that it will be open and available to you and present with you no matter what your troubles are. And he doubly promises this in Deuteronomy 31.6 and Hebrews 13.5. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Because God loves us so much. He poured out all the wrath he held for sin on Christ's shoulders as he died on the cross. And because of his love, we're no longer slaves, but we're free from being trapped by the temporary troubles of life. Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Jesus set us free from the permanence of sickness and pain, from the inner turmoil of grudges, from the evil of our sins, and from the intense disappointment when a friend uh, hurts us from the need to feel good all the time. Jesus sets us free from that. All of these things can be difficult, but none of these things last forever. In Christ, if we don't, we don't have to have the best day every day because we have eternal security and eternal affection, eternal love, and eternal life. But best of all, we have an eternal Father who loves us and cares for us even when we're down and out. We are His and He is ours. When David writes, For in you I take refuge, he's saying that God is a safe place, a place where you can get shelter as you go through the storms of life. David goes on and he preaches to himself more. And he makes another statement in the midst of his trouble about who God is. He says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord in Psalm 16 too. And what he means is God is my forever sovereign God. The word sovereign means supremely powerful. And to really grasp what this means, I think you have to consider that using this adjective... To describe God implies that he is in absolute control of everything. The rain, the sun, poverty and wealth, sickness and health, life and death, every breath we draw, he is in control. Now some people look at this idea of the sovereignty of God and it offends their sensibilities. Because they think that means God is just a puppet master 
one person who told me once that he was an atheist, a very, very intelligent guy. He told me that God treated the earth like his personal ant farm, and he shook it up from time to time to create disaster, just so he could see what would happen and how we would react, and whether we would still believe in him. And my response to that was, so you do believe in God, right? And he said, you know what I mean. But if you look at the idea of the sovereignty of God through the lens of Scripture, we see a loving God who is in control of how many grains of sand are in the world and how many sparrows there are. And not only that, He considers us of much greater value than sparrows to the point that He knows how many hairs are on our heads. When we think of a sovereign God in this context, we see a God who is in control not so that He might lord over us like a tyrant, but so that we can live life unafraid, no matter what our circumstances are. Trevin Wax wrote, There are no accidents in your life. Nothing has been left to chance. Every economic downturn, every phone call in the middle of the night, Every oncology report, every election has been sent to us from the God who sees all things, plans all things, and loves us more than we know. He wrote, As children of our Heavenly Father, divine providence is always for us and never against us. Whether your hopes or your fears come true, God will never be untrue to those who love Him and have been called according to his purpose. He will always lead his people, always listen to the brokenhearted, and always love his children. God moves in mysterious ways, performing wonders as he goes. The unmoved mover who moves all and is moved by none is not an impersonal force, but the God who is my Father in heaven. We cannot often read the inscrutable lines of His sovereignty, but we can always trust the author and the perfecter of our faith. Today's New Testament reading from Colossians 1 says, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent and why is he preeminent completely for our benefits for our good the text from colossians goes on to say he reconciled to himself all things whether in earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross Even when we don't have peace in the world, we have peace with God. Because Christ died on the cross to erase the sin that made us enemies of God. When David wrote, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, he actually used two different Hebrew words for Lord. He said, I say to the Lord, Yahweh. And he's acknowledging that God is the forever God. 
Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and the Exodus and the rescuer of God's chosen people. And he goes on to say, you are my Lord Adonai, which means the sovereign God, the all-powerful God, the God who is in complete control even when life seems out of control. David goes on to write, and he makes another declaration. He continues preaching to himself in the midst of his problems, and he makes another declaration about who God is to him. He says in Psalm 16, 2, I have no good apart from you. And what he means by that is God is my greatest treasure. God is the greatest thing that David possesses, and anything else that he possesses, any experience he has, any friendship, any romance, Anything at all that he has can't compare to how much he treasures God. Matthew 6.21 says this. It says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And how do we know what our treasure is? I think we can tell by thinking about what we enjoy. We can tell what our treasure is by considering how we spend our time, our money, our efforts, and the sweat of our brow. So what is it that you devote your time to and your money? What is it that you truly enjoy? It might be work or it might be career or your wife or your girlfriend or husband or or boyfriend. It might be your kids' sports. But whatever you sacrifice the most for, that's where your treasure really is. That's what you truly enjoy. The Westminster Shorter Catechism reads, The chief end of man, our entire purpose for life, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now, too many people look at faith as just another obligation, just another place that you have to take the kids, just another chore that you have to complete, where if you genuinely know Christ, you'll treasure and enjoy the time that you spend worshiping Him and in service to Him. Scripture emphatically compels us to enjoy God. Philippians 4.4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord. Psalm 32.11 says, Be glad in the Lord. Psalm 16.11 in today's text, In your presence there is fullness of joy. In Psalm 16.5, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. When David wrote these words in today's text, he's saying, God is where I want to be and who I want to be with. Romans 5.11 says, We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. In Christ, we no longer have to worry about the guilt and shame of our sin. We no longer have to stress about facing God and receiving judgment in eternity because Jesus Christ took the punishment for all of our sins on the cross, we have the opportunity to know God and not just endure religion, but to enjoy Him forever. For all the temporary pleasure that we might attain from sex and politics and sports and binge-watching Netflix, nothing can give us joy like knowing Jesus. John Piper wrote, Think of the kindest person you know, 
the most loving person, the wisest person, the most patient and intelligent person, the strongest person, the most tender-hearted person, the happiest person, the most peaceful person, the most optimistic person, the meekest and most courageous person, the most articulate person, the person with the best sense of humor, and the most generous person. Immediately, Jennifer just thought about Neil Smith. Think about it, what it's like to enjoy these persons when their personalities are at their best. And then combine all the good traits of all those people into one person and then increase those traits to perfection in quality and to infinite beauty in how they are proportioned and exercised. And then let all the enjoyment of all those persons for all those personal excellencies heightened to perfection give you some hint about what it will be like to enjoy God fully for all eternity. We exist to magnify the incomparable beauty and worth of our God, to treasure God above all things. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. If you're treasuring God in your heart, nothing will give you more pleasure than Him. Enjoying God is our first and greatest duty as human beings. He's the best thing we can have, and we have nothing good apart from Him. David goes on, and he continues preaching to himself. And he declares in Psalm 16.3, he says, As for the saints in the land, when David says this, he means the ones who treasure God and live for God. And for us, the people who share our faith in Jesus Christ, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. What David means is God is my source of community. We live in a world that is infinitely connected via electronics, but starving to death for intimacy and close relationships. I told y'all a few years back there was a young man from church who was going through a difficult time, and he sent me a text message And I actually sat and counted because the text message was so long. It was 500 words long. And I read the text message and I texted him back and I said, Hey man, give me a call. This is a lot to text about. And he wrote me back and he said, I don't have time to talk. And I said, you just wrote a five-page essay. You have time to talk. And we did. But there's a disconnect amongst people today. We can send messages we need to send via text on our smartphones, and we never actually have to have a conversation. We can order our groceries via click list and never have to say a word to anyone or smile at another human in the store. We can do all of our shopping online and never see the world around us, never know the joys of walking through Walmart in Elberton. Christianity is not a faith where we live on an island by ourselves. I'll tell you, and Neil and Jen probably remember this. I think Russ and, and Jen were there too. But a while back, we, a group of us went out to lunch after church, and we went to this restaurant, and 
I think there were about 21 of us, and I think uh, uh, 15 of them were kids under the age of nine. And so the restaurant hated seeing us come in the door, you know. And, and, um, and we walked in, and there's a beautiful couple that, that we all know and that we all love dearly. And they attend a very large church in Athens. And there's nothing wrong with that church. And I don't want anyone to get that impression for people who know them and who might understand who I'm talking about. But I thought about how we down here at Carlton, we go to a church that's considered a small church. But then there was a group of 21 of us that wanted to get together and eat afterwards. And, and, and this beautiful family, these very loving and great Christian people that go to a church with a couple thousand members were eating alone and we were all together and sharing life together and since then Brittany and I have noticed them out after church several times and they're almost always eating alone and and it kind of broke my heart kind of broke my heart and I know I have a great friend who attends the same church and he told me what he loves about attending that church is that he can go and that nobody will talk to him and he can enjoy the music and he can hear a message that makes him feel better and he can go home and sleep for the rest of the day and not be bothered with other people. God intends for us to live out our faith not just attending church but in the fellowship of other believers. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So you can be a Christian and you can sit home every Sunday, or you can go to church anonymously somewhere. But you're missing out on the inspiration and encouragement of sharing life with other imperfect people who are willing and want to be transformed into something different from what we are. Psalm 149.1 says, Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the faithful. We're commanded to sing God's praises together as a church. So we're to worship and live out our faith corporately, finding delight in all of these excellent people that we're surrounded with right now. We're all an expression of God's grace to each other. Each one of you is a gift from God to the person who's sitting next to you. So Peyton, Shannon is a gift to you. Even though Kellen stood up here and said she's a rotten sinner, She's a gift to you. We're a gift to each other. Even though we might get on each other's nerves and even though we might disagree and even though we might aggravate each other, people can have a million reasons for excluding themselves from fellowship with other believers. And there's some good ones because church life can be messy sometimes. Anytime you get 50 people in a room together and you have a business meeting, you're going to have 150 different opinions. And somebody's going to get their feelings hurt. 
And I think probably all of us here have experienced hurt and disappointment and heartbreak in churches. But I want to tell you, Jesus understands that. It costs something to live in community with human beings. He wound up nailed to a cross by the very people that he came to serve and to save. But as Christians, we die to what we want sometimes so that we can have life in Christ and community with other believers. So when you're in here and it's like today and I'm up here right now, I am sweating like a University of Alabama football player trying to do basic math right now because I know Johnny's got that thermostat set on 80. And I'm mad at him about it, let me tell you. Or when you're at church and Ray is parked in the same space for 30 years and you park in his space and he yells at you to move. Or when Denise, who has sat in that spot probably since she was a kid, walks in and there's somebody sitting in her space and how dare they. You have to remember, all of us are gifts from God to each other. Henry Nouwen wrote, As one body, we will experience deeply one another's agonies as well as one another's ecstasies. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, If one part of the body is hurt, all the parts share its pain. And if one part is honored, all the parts share in its joy. Jesus Christ led you to this place and he's given you these people, the ones that David called excellent ones, to live life together with and to share in sorrows and to share in joys. David goes on and he makes another declaration in Psalm 16:4. He says, The sorrows of those who run after other gods shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. What he's saying is God is my source of spirituality. Here David uses a negative statement to promote a radical preference for his God. He values God so highly, there's no way that he will fool around with other gods. We live in a world that says we cannot be exclusive about our faith, that we should believe all paths lead to God, that all religions really worship the same God, Pew Research Council did a study just a couple of years ago, and 65% of people who say that they are Christians believe that there are many paths to God, which is entirely contradictory to the core biblical belief that Jesus himself stated in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no way to the Father except through the Son. But the world screams for religious inclusivity and demands that we accept that there are many truths out there for us to consider. And that honestly is one of the craziest things I've ever heard. Truth is not subjective. 
And it doesn't change according to the way I feel or according to pop culture or where I was raised or whether how the government defines truth. Truth is objective and it never changes. So saying you're a Christian in one breath and saying there are many roads to God in another breath is heresy. And it's a lie from the pit of hell and you are condemning yourself. The God of Islam is not the God of Christians. Buddha is not God. The million lowercase g gods of Hinduism are not our uppercase capital G God. David is saying that it's not even worth his time to put other gods' names on his lips. So why even talk about them? God is our ultimate source of spirituality. David goes on in verse 5, and he writes, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. And what he means is God is my ultimate satisfaction. La Michicana is the ice cream place over on the corner of Glen Carey Road and Highway 29 in Hull. And it is one of my favorite places on planet Earth. They probably have 40 different kinds of homemade ice cream. Probably another 20 to 25 popsicles with fresh fruit in them. Who wants fresh fruit when there's ice cream? Seven or eight fresh fruity drinks you can get. No alcohol. Sorry, Lisa. Um, and, and they have all these incredible salty, spicy snacks that they sell too. And they have a lot of things that are really delicious. But I'm telling you, every time I go in there... I get the same thing. I get two scoops of chocolate ice cream in a waffle cone because it is amazing. It is incredible. We're going to have to go today, Brittany. <laughs> There's nothing else that I choose there. There's nothing else I want. That satisfies me. David has the same mindset of all the things in the world he could try and he could taste. There's nothing that nourishes him, that sustains him and satisfies him like God. I don't want to minimize the glory of God here by comparing him to chocolate ice cream. But there just aren't a lot of human comparisons out there to the wonder and the majesty and the awesome nature in Jesus. But in context, Jesus is the greatest taste on the menu of anything that you could ever desire for all of eternity. He's living water. When we drink it, we're never thirsty again. He's the bread of life. And when we receive it, we never get hungry again. Piper wrote this about this verse in today's text. He said, And since God is the source of greatest happiness... And since he is the greatest treasure in the world, and since his glory is the most satisfying gift he could possibly give us, therefore it is the kindness, most loving thing he could possibly do to reveal himself and magnify himself and vindicate himself for our everlasting enjoyments. St. Augustine wrote this prayer to God. He said, Great are you, Lord. And exceedingly worthy of praise. Your power is immense. And your wisdom beyond reckoning. And so we men who are a due part of your creation long to praise you. You arouse us so that praising you may bring us joy. Because you have made us and drawn us to yourself. Our hearts are restless until they rest 
in you. Nothing satisfies like Jesus. Blaise Pascal wrote, All men seek happiness. And this is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all are seeking this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but toward happiness. This is the motive of, of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. They just want to be happy. Scottish author Bruce Marshall wrote once that every young man who rings the bell at the brothel is searching for God. The fundamental orientation of the human heart is to seek God in the peace and the satisfaction and the purpose in life and the truth that only He can bring. We all have what Pascal recalled a God-shaped vacuum inside of us, a space that only Christ can fill. And when we chase after anything else, sex or love or money or sports, we do so actually longing for God. And half the time, we don't even realize it. The greatest gift God could ever get of us isn't a great career or a lot of money or a perfectly beautiful spouse or expensive vacation or achievement in sports. The greatest gift is Himself. Psalm 16:11 says, In His presence is fullness of joy, and at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. And let me tell you, there's a million television preachers that will tell you that means if you go to church and you smile and you put some money in the offering plate, God will give you a Cadillac and He'll make you famous. But what David is saying is, if God is what you treasure in your heart, the thing that you enjoy and the thing you desire the most, God will give you what you desire. He will give you Himself. God is our portion and our cup. And we'll close today with this, Psalm 16, 5. David says that God is our best bet. He wrote, You hold my lot. It's interesting to me that David uses the language of gambling, casting lots, to describe the faithfulness and the sovereignty and the goodness of God. When the chips are down, when the dice are rolled, when the straws are drawn, when the wheel is turned, the end result is in the hands of God. God is in charge of our past, our present, and our future. The Heidelberg Catechism asks this question. It says, what is your only comfort in life and in death? What is your best bet? And he goes on to answer that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ.
He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things work together for my salvation. And by His Holy Spirit, He assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Jesus is our best and our surest bet. I'm going to ask our musicians to come. The good news of the Gospel is not that Jesus gave Himself fully as a free gift so that we could have a stress-free life. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus gave himself as a treasure bearing the punishment for our sins on the cross. So our true treasure, the most valuable thing we could ever own for all eternity is the one thing that costs us nothing. And it costs Jesus everything. Tim Keller wrote, Every treasure on this earth says, Give your life to purchase me. Jesus says, I'm the one treasure who gave my life to purchase you.